five, two more or less means teachings, the first five books that Moses had given to all the people before that they would go into the promised land. They lay out all of these things to say, this is how you live before a holy God. And this is how you live as my holy people. I have chose you and set you apart from all of these other nations. And if you do these things, it will go well for you. But on the flip side of that, verses 15 and 19 of 28, we see what happens if they disobey. Did I give you that one? Yeah, there it is. But, on the contrary, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall, you be, uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. God has laid it before the people very, very simply. And so when you read the rest of the Old Testament... This is a callback over and over and over again. Say, why is God oppressing the people? Why is God allowing these nations to, to oppress them and to rule over them? Why are they going through famines? Why are they going through drought? Why are they going through all of these hard, difficult things? It's because they didn't want to walk with God in obedience. It says they want to do it their own way. And it says, okay, if you want to do it your own way, then you don't get my protection. So he laid it out before them. Later in this chapter, he goes on to say that he will make the rain like powder and dust, and the heavens would be bronze and the land would be iron. He says, you're not going to have crops, which was so huge for them uh, in their society and in their culture uh, that they would need all of those things, that they would experience drought and famine in the land. And if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, what do we see? Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. People of Israel are not doing well. And as a result of that, they are experiencing the result, the consequences of their rebellion against God, the straying against him. And so there is famine in the land because they have strayed from him. And so now that we see a little bit of this setting and what we're working with here, now we need to meet our, our main characters here. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan, I call it Malan because I can't pronounce the Hebrew side of it, and Chilean. Malan and Chilean, is, they kind of sound cool. Uh, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Uh, we, we talked about this with Jonah, but the, the meaning of people's names is so important, right? That there is something that when you say, see this person's name, it's saying, okay, they're going to live according to that. They need to live up to that name. Elimelech means my God is king. My God is king. This was a call to the sovereignty of God and, and mainly his parents hoping that he would live as though God is king in his life, that he would live up to that. Naomi means pleasant, that she is the pleasant one. Malin and Chilean, their names are not so great. Malin means sickly. Sickly, yes, sickly. Sickness, uh, weakness. 
Chilean means tiny and puny, scrawny. You're going to see in just a couple of verses that they're going to live according to these names, uh, which is very unfortunate And uh, in the next few verses. But, but first, we need to see how this family that we have this microscope on, how do they respond to famine in the land? Because there's a famine in the land, and obviously a famine is not good. There's a lot of pressure. All of a sudden, food is, is limited. Uh, there's a struggle. You have to figure out what you're going to do in order to survive when, when a famine is there in the land. And now, when I say in the land, we're talking about the promised land of Canaan that God had promised his people ever since Genesis 12. It's the Abrahamic covenant that he gave. He said, you will have a great name, you will have a great seed, you will have a great blessing, and you will have a land. And God had promised Abraham and therefore all of his descendants of the people of Israel land. And this land that they were in, they had just gotten in, that Joshua had come before and, and he did some work and they cleared a lot of that and there was still work to be done that they did not complete. And, and so they were supposed to be in this land. God has given it to them and he says, you will be blessed in this place if you, if you live in it because it is flowing with milk and honey and it was uh, fertile soil, all of the things that God had put there before them. And God had promised to give them this land and, and, and clear it and do all of these things if they just walked with him. But there's a famine in the land, and Elimelech and his family is forced with a decision. Do I stay in the land that God has given to us, even if it means economic ruin? Or do I take matters into my own hands, and do we go outside of the land to provide for our needs? Do I leave the land... Do I go outside of the land that he's promised in hopes that we can live a better life? Now, just to put that decision and that tension in our context, no, there's not a land that we are explicitly called to. I doubt that's Denton, Texas for any of us. Uh, we're not Israel, right? So we don't need to just go load up and say, let's go to Canaan, let's live there. That, that's not the, the application for us, but... Is it possible for us to be pressured into doing things that we know is against God's will? Like, is it possible for us to feel pressure from outside of our lives that things just kind of push us into a situation where we're like, man, it seems easier that to lie right now. It seems easier to say this, to do that, to not do this, to not do it the right way, to not do it God's way, because it would probably go better for me if I just didn't obey. And I just kind of took matters into my own hands. Like maybe I could, I could cheat my way and cut some corners and not do it to the best of my abilities or, or not go to the fullest extent in order to protect my well-being. Yeah, that can happen to us without a doubt. And I think the reality for all of us is that sometimes doing the right thing might cost you. Sometimes doing the right thing might cost you. You might miss out on some things as a believer, as a follower of Christ. You might miss out on some things in this life because you follow Jesus. That's the reality. For them, staying in the land that God had given them would have cost his family a lot. 
But God never promised that following him wouldn't cost us anything. In fact, quite the opposite. When we go and see Jesus, he is constantly laying people, giving them the details to say, this is the cost of following me. He says, hey, can we come and see? Can we be with you? Where are you staying? And he says, there is no place. He says, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to reject your family. You're going to have to forsake all of those things. He says, get up and follow me. He says, hey, all of my disciples, I know you've got this fishing thing going on. I know you have this business. I know it's successful. I know you just pulled in the largest amount of fish that you ever had because I helped you out. Leave it there and follow me. The Lord does not promise that following him wouldn't cost us anything. So sometimes we're going to have to take a hit if we're just going to do it God's way. And I can't, we can't go around to every single person and say, so what is that in your life? What does that look like in your life? But that principle is there. As for Elimelech and his family, they decided to sojourn in Moab. He says, we're going to go outside of the land in hopes that we can have a better life than the one that God had promised us in the land. Sojourn means they were planning to stay for a short, short time that this was a temporary stay that they were planning. He says, oh, this isn't going to be forever. We're not going to stay here. Uh, this is just a brief amount of time that we're going to here uh, because we don't want to lose everything. We're going to see that they kind of came in full, that they were doing well for themselves. They are, they are Ephrathites, as the, as the text says, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, meaning they were kind of, uh, of, of nobility that they were well off, as we would say, uh, where they lived. And so for them, there was this chance that they would have economic ruin, physical ruin, but also a loss of status because they no longer had the things that they had, so they would lose influence in the society. So they were moving out of the land, says, hopefully we can stay this, keep all of these things, and then come back and keep our place and all of the things that we want. So they're trying to manipulate the circumstances. But look at the end of verse 2. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. He says, I think we're actually going to set up residence here. This is longer than just a temporary stay. We're going to be here. Now what is the result of these decisions? Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. We do not know how he dies, and the, the text doesn't tell us how he dies, and the text also doesn't tell us why he dies. So to some degree, we, we don't know, but many scholars explain that his death was a result of his disobedience. That his death was because they had forsaken God, they had forsaken the land, and all of those things, so we're going to do it our way, and a result of that is his death. God does not bless disobedience. He's not going to bless it if you go another way than his. And so at this point, we'd assume, right, that Naomi and the boys, they're like, okay, we need to go back home. We need to go around all of our other kinsmen and all of these different things. But they decide uh, that they're going to entrench themselves even further into Moab. So no, actually, we're going to stay. And, and they end up getting married. Verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. 
This is the opposite of, of uh, just a brief stay. Uh, they are now locking themselves into Moab and, and the ways of it. So we are introduced to Orpah and Ruth. Orpah means neck, like firmness, like a firm neck. Maybe she was stubborn, who knows? Very weird name. Ruth means friendship. It means friend. And we're going to see she is the best friend uh, that you can imagine. And, and so we're introduced to two of those people and they get married and you say, well, why is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing to get married to Moabites? Well, understanding Moab and the people of it is very important for us. So Ruth, Orpah, they are not Israelites. They are not Jews. They are not followers of, of Yahweh the Lord. Uh, in fact, they were enemies of Israel. They were constantly, on and off, on and off again, uh, attacking and oppressing the people of Israel. And they were a pagan, idolatrous uh, nation that they worshipped many gods. Many, many different gods. One of the, uh, probably the foremost gods that they worshipped was Kamash, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, if you want to look it up. I don't know if you're into that kind of stuff. Uh, Kamash was the one that they worshipped, and uh, he was... Not great. Uh, often worshiping him meant uh, killing your children as a offering to him. And it was always in temple prostitution that you would just have sex with people in these temple things so that your lands would be fertile, right? And, and so all of this messed up, uh, weird stuff that they would happen, and that was going on in Moab. And, and so God was against the Moabites, and the people of Moab did not like the Israelites. And God, time and time again, told his people, do not intermingle and intermarry with these other nations that are around you. And here's the deal. This isn't about race. This isn't because they're Moabites and God just doesn't like the, the, their race. This is a, a faith problem. That they did not worship the Lord. They did not follow the Lord. They were often against the Lord and against him. This that, that Yahweh, if he even was a God, was just one of many others. And so for them, they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do some worship things. We'll sacrifice a bull to your God, but then we're going to go over here and we're going to do this, these other things. And so it was absolutely contrary to all that God has called his people to in Israel. It says that we don't want to marry in with them. First uh, Kings 11 kind of talks about this, and, and this is later in the story with King Solomon, which is uh, the third king. It is David's son. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them. Literally, be among them. Nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. So, hey, if you marry outside of the faith, they're going to turn your heart away from me. So that is not good. In our context today, uh, wherever you are in the dating engaged or married scale, my encouragement to you is do not date outside of the Christian faith. If you are a follower of Jesus and you try and date somebody that is not a follower of Jesus, you're going different directions. You are living for a different purpose if you're a follower of Jesus than anyone in the world. We're living for him. 
And so those things are not compatible. And if you find that you and this person you're dating with are extremely compatible in the way that you live, you need to check your life and what you're living for and your lifestyle. Because if your life isn't different than somebody that's not following Jesus, then are you following Jesus? Being holy, being called by God means that we are set apart. We have been separated for a specific purpose. It's to live for God, to be used by Him, to glorify Him and and, and enjoy Him forever, to walk in His ways. And when we go outside of that, it's dangerous for us that it would turn our hearts after other gods. and if you were to read the story and continue with Solomon, that was his downfall. It's that he married so many, an insane amount of other women, and a lot of it was just for political gain. Uh, but they turned his heart away from the Lord towards so many other gods. And so for here, for, for Malin and Chilean and this family, right, they have this decision. We're here in Moab. We are in a culture that is much different than ours. How are we going to relate to this culture? We're going to be in it, but are we going to embrace it? Are we going to be of it? Are we going to begin to start acting like them and talking like them and doing all the things that they would do? We have that same question, do we not? We are Christians. We are a follower of Christ. We're we're called to be lights in the darkness. And, And the Christian world has handled really our engagement with this world uh, in a variety of different ways all throughout history. You have probably heard of uh, hermits, essentially, <laughs> uh, that idea. Like, there, there are some Christians that say, we are going to completely seclude ourselves, build fortresses, and become nuns and monks and all of these things in our monasteries, and we are just going to separate ourselves completely from the world. Because we don't want to have to do with any of the darkness. And you have another side that can go too far where it says, we're going to be in the world, we're going to be of the world, but we're going to do all the things that the world does, uh, but we're also just kind of going to be Christian at the same time. And, and that's not going to go either, but we have to be in the world, but not of it. That we don't run the same direction, we don't practice the same things, we don't live for the same things. But Jesus reclined with sinners. He was with them. He, he had relationships with people that did not follow him. So we have to learn how to navigate those things and do them well. Here in this story, Malin and Chilean, they they failed to do so. They intermarried, and look what happens. Verse 5, Then both Malin and Chilean also died, and the woman was bereft. She was left of her two children and her husband. At this point, Naomi has lost everything. She has lost everything. All of the stuff that they came with from Israel is, is now slowly and rapidly, well, actually not slowly, rapidly being gone in 10 years. So they leave the land in hopes that they could kind of hold everything together while the land is a mess. And in their attempts, their human vain attempts to do it their way and not God's way and trusting him and staying in the land, even when there's a famine, trusting that he's going to provide and he's going to be enough for them, they try and hold it all together, but it all falls apart. That can happen to us. Finally, verse 6, 
Naomi decides it's time to go back home. So she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. A note on this. I, I think in this moment, I, I always think back to the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son is in the pig slop uh, because he hasn't had any food because he had took all of his inheritance and spent it on prostitutes and lavish living. And then he's left with nothing. And then he gets some random job cleaning up pigs. That's, that's a low job right there when you're the hygiene specialist for pigs. And he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. Friends, that's where sin takes us we will find ourselves longing to eat what pigs eat. And in that moment in Prodigal Son, Luke 15, it says this, the man came to his senses. And he says, do not the servants in my father's house eat better than this? He's saying, you know what? My father's way is better than this. And here we have Naomi finally having this moment where she says, you know what? It's better to be in the land where God has called us to be. And in God's providence, he starts to draw her back because she hears that there is now food back in the land that God has visited his people. He is drawing back the one that has strayed. Verse 7, so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Likely, uh, they're both just kind of following her, maybe till they get to some stream, and then they'll hug, they'll cry, and then they'll go. Uh, they'll, they'll part ways, and it'll be a whole sad affair. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, go back home, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go home, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I said if I had hope, or if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? The answer is no, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She's saying, I can't offer you security. I can't offer you food and shelter. I have no provision for you. You have a better hope and a better chance going back home, hitting the reset button than following me. He's saying, you just need to go home. It is hopeless if you follow me. She says, Naomi says, it's harder for me than it is for you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Classic mom statement right there. Uh, but there she's saying, there is no future in following me. That's it. She says, I'm a widow. I have nothing left. For Naomi, she also notices at the end of verse 13, she says, For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. We see that Naomi has caught on what has been happening for the last 10 years of her life. That God is against us. That God is not blessing us and is not with us because we have been running from him. 
we have been straying in disobedience and in rebellion. And so she is realizing, I've got to go back home because I won't make it here. I will not make it outside of God's design and will for my life. She says, God is against me. So verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah's going to leave, but Ruth clings to her. So verse uh, verse 15, rather, then she said, Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people, and don't miss this, and her gods, little g-o-d-s, her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah, she goes back home. She goes back uh, to her old way of life uh, with all of the idolatry and worship of these other gods that, that there is no transformation in Orpah's life. There was no change. She's sad to go, but she says, I'm not going to risk everything in going this way. So she goes back home to her other gods. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For, you. for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. You want to know why Ruth's name is friendship? Because that's what that is right there. She's saying, I'm not going anywhere, Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Now, as you're reading that, that might sound a little bit familiar to you uh, because it sounds a whole lot like the vows that we make on a wedding day. It's the vows that we would commit to one another uh, when we are saying, I am going with you, when we say, I do. It's what a bride and groom say to one another when I say, I do, to the covenant of marriage. Ruth is committing her life to following Naomi. And as an extension of that, and greater than Naomi, Ruth is committing to life under the Lord. Ruth is going into a hopeless situation where there is very little to no future that they can navigate on their own. They are helpless to making this work, and she goes anyway. She is making a life commitment, a full commitment, and she is done with her old life. This is what transformation looks like in the Christian life. We say, I am done with my old way of life. I don't want those, anything, those things anymore. I'm not living for that anymore. Lord, I am following you. Wherever you lead me, wherever you say go, whatever you call me to do, I am yours. Have your way in me. This is a surrenderance of Ruth's life that we model in the Christian life when we surrender to him that Naomi's God would be Ruth's God. And she says, the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. The Lord, she calls on the covenant name of God. In fact, faith uh, has three compartments. There's three compartments to kind of the essence of faith, of saving faith that we have. The first one is knowledge, that we have to know what we're putting our trust in, right? We have to know what it is. The second part is what we call assent, which is essentially agreement, 
that we would believe that which we know and that which we have heard. So we have knowledge, we have assent, and then finally, we have a love commitment. We have a love commitment. We sing all of these things happen in Ruth's life, that she knows the covenant name of God. She believes that he is God. She, she is done with all the other gods, and she is making a love commitment. By the way, that love commitment always has risk involved. Is Ruth taking some risks here? Absolutely. She is going to be the lowest on the totem pole of, as far as cultural significance and importance in Israel. Because she is from an enemy nation, as a widow, as a woman. With no name, with no property, any of those things. The lowest of the low in that society. And she is going. She does not know what her future holds. But she goes anyway. Why? Because she knows the Father holds her future. It's like, it doesn't matter where I go because the Father is with me and he is enough. Even if I have nothing, if I have the Father, it's enough for me. We sang that song, is he worthy? He is worthy. Even if there is no earthly gain and earthly substance that comes with it, he is worthy. There is no doubt that Ruth sees that, and Ruth lives that out in her life. Verse 18, I love this. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She says, I am losing this argument 10 times out of 10. <laughs> and she's absolutely right. So verse 19, uh, they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Ruth going for the first time to the promised land. Naomi is returning after wandering from God's will. For Naomi, this can be seen as a picture of repentance. That Naomi is returning from her years of, of wandering from the Lord. I think all of us have been in there. Maybe not years, but we have just gone stretches where we just are distant from God. We are cold. We haven't touched the world. We haven't been to church. We've just been doing things we know we shouldn't be doing. And we're just straying farther and farther and farther away. And we have that moment where we're like, where am I? And how have I gone so far? And how have I stooped so low? Can I just tell you, if that's where you are, or, or you are going there and you're heading that direction, wherever you are in your life, just know that you can go back home. You can go back home, that God will receive you in his grace. And so they go to the land, verse 19, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. That's what Mara means, bitter. For God has dealt very bitterly from, to me. She leaves the land, and she has been emptied. This is what happens for us as God's people, that when we go from God, we go from a place of fullness, and we move towards a place of emptiness. We think sin is going to work so well for us. We think doing what is right in our own eyes is saying, you know what, we'll just go to Moab. They have all this great stuff. It'll be fine. It'll be good. It, it, this will go well for us. And then we, it leads to nothing but bitterness. 
So before you make decisions, before you plunge into something because it seems so good at the front of it, then would you just consider that God might just be right and we just might be wrong? Would you just consider that he might have our best interest in mind more than we have our best interest in mind? We have a very short and shallow and superficial interest of ourselves. We want something that feels good for a moment regardless of what might happen after it. And that's exactly what sin offers. And a, a, a meteoric high that feels so good and it seems like it's so right and everything is going well, but it just goes down and down and down into bitterness and emptiness. This is the story that Naomi is living. Learn from the story of Naomi. Don't go that direction. Return to the Lord. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She knows that God is against her, that God has poured out the consequences for their disobedience. She knows God does not bless disobedience. Disobedience brings pain, while obedience brings blessing. So we're about to see this in the turn, the repentance that Naomi is making. But surely at this point, Naomi could testify to the truth of Deuteronomy 28. Could she not? Man, when I obeyed, there was blessing. When we were in the land, we were full. But when we went away and we disobeyed, we are now empty. The pain of disobedience is intended to bring us back into a right relationship with God. She's coming back empty, but praise God she's coming back. That the Lord has brought her back. As a parent disciplines a rebellious child, that's what God does for us. And so when you say, man, God is against me, God is, because I have done this and this and this, uh, God is so against all of these things, and I am bearing the consequences of that stuff. Yeah, that, I mean, God's not going to bless disobedience. But don't think for a second that because God doesn't bless disobedience, don't think that God doesn't lavish grace on sinners. He's not for your disobedience, but he lavishes grace on us. And you have to hold those things in tension the rest of your days. That, that God is not for us when we run in these directions, when we run to disobedience, when we do all of that crap. He's not for those actions. But when you come to your senses and you want to go back home because you know his way is better, you have to walk in grace. Knowing that his love for us is that big that he forgives. That his forgiveness is enough to draw us back to himself. I know some of you in this room, you'd probably say you're pretty far from God right now. And Satan and the enemy is so good to condemn us and condemn us and condemn us to make us feel like dirt and trash and so unworthy of anything that you won't even sing out while we're in here in worship. That you don't even feel worthy to pray to God. You pray and you're, you're squinting. You're, you're, you're afraid that something's going to happen, that you could hardly look up before him. You're right, we don't deserve it. But that's the graciousness of God that he lavishes on us, that we don't deserve it, and yet he favors us. That is love. And so what happens? Verse 22, 
So Naomi returned, and with her, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They have absolutely nothing, but God in his timing brings them back when the harvest has arrived, i.e., God is going to provide food for them. God's going to bless their obedience as they repent. God's saying, hey, as you come back home, there's a meal waiting for you. I'm not going to put you out there in the dog kennel, and you're just going to have to sit there and wait and mope for a few years before you can enter back into my presence. We enter into the presence through the sacrifice of the Son. He says we would boldly approach his throne with confidence. He's the king of the universe, and the scriptures say we can approach his throne with confidence. Not with an irresponsibility and irreverence, because he is the God of the universe. But we can come before him, because he sees us not for what we have done, but what, for Christ, what Christ has done for us. So Naomi is going to receive grace, and God is going to restore so many things in her life. So if that's where you are right now, I just want you to know that his timing is perfect and his grace is enough. His timing is perfect and his grace is enough for this journey. And finally, as I was reading this over and over again, I just kept thinking about the whole town of Bethlehem that shows up when Naomi and Ruth come over the hill. And they're coming over this hill I mean, with nothing, right? They left with all their cattle, with all their wagons, with all of their food, with their whole family, all of this stuff, and now it's just Naomi and a Moabite girl with absolutely nothing, and she says, I'm bitter now. In the scripture, there is no evidence that these people open up their home for Naomi and Ruth. There is no evidence that they give them a meal, that they help them out in any kind of way. All we know is that they're just kind of left to their own. And so for us as the people of God, when you have friends, when you have people, I mean, they are crawling into this place because sin has dealt bitterly with them. How do we respond? Are we going to open the door for people? Are we going to love them? Are we going to give them a place to stay? Are we going to throw our arm around them and encourage them? Or are we just going to stick away from them because of the things that they have done. We play a role here as the people of God being the hands and feet of Jesus, that we would extend love and grace as the Father extends love and grace. And the love and grace that, that he shows all of us is not because of our sin. It's not to say, hey, I love that you're a sinner and I want you to show up and I want you to keep sinning like God loves us in spite of our sin, right? And so we do the same. Say, so, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be with you if you just continue to run in disobedience and destroy your life. And say, but hey, if you want to grow, if you want to walk with God, let's do that together. There's a place here for you that we can walk together in growth and restoration, that we could be that as the people of God. What a beautiful opportunity for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that he would, that Christ would make his appeal through us. Let me pray for us.
Father, you have a plan to make sure that Naomi and Ruth will be provided for. Your timing is perfect. Your grace is immeasurable. Your provision is enough. God, I pray for all of us in this room where we are right now, Lord, would you just continually remind us that you are good, that your way is the best way, that we wouldn't run anywhere else, that we wouldn't run into sin, that we wouldn't run uh, towards, towards lust and towards adultery and towards uh, brokenness and the ways of this world that look so good and appealing, like they're living the life. We have all of this jealousy and all of this envy because the grass is greener on the other side, just like Elimelech and his family thought. This man, the grass is greener in Moab. Let's go there. Father, would you just give us faith to trust you, that your way is better? And God, for wherever we are, wherever my friends are in this room, I pray that we would believe that your grace is enough and is lavished on us. So if we find ourselves in Moab right now, where we shouldn't be, pray that we wouldn't doubt for a second that you will not welcome us back with open arms. That that is your love. And God, as we navigate this life, would we know that you are worthy of all devotion, of all praise that we will ever bring, of every act that we will ever do. You are worthy of that worship. God, would you help us believe? We love you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.